0: Welcome and thank you for joining me on episode 8 of Galaxy Rise. This is the June 2019 edition of the show, and I'm your host, Dustin Ruoff. This month has been an incredibly busy and distracted month for me personally. It still remains unseasonably cold, regularly windy, and we're somewhat dry now, but rain persisted most of May. My astronomy activities have pretty much ground to a halt, unfortunately. Regardless, I've been immersing myself in a number of podcasts audiobooks, and keeping up with the latest space and astronomy news as best I can. I had a blast going to my daughter's fourth grade class for an hour teaching them all about space stations and how we may colonize space in the future, which I'll discuss at the end of the show. Also, there have been a number of exciting reveals by NASA in support of its intended 2024 lunar mission, now officially called Artemis. Artemis is the sister of Apollo, and the appropriate name for a new mission, which touts landing the first woman on the moon as a key component of its sales pitch. In a recent presentation, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine outlined the entire program through 2024 and beyond, including the role of private companies who will provide a shorter path to mission success than previous NASA design and development methods. NASA officials also announced the first three private companies who are developing lunar landers for Artemis, In an unexpected blow, however, the person hired to create the strategy to meet the 2024 target, Mark Serangelo, a veteran of the private space industry, resigned only six weeks after starting the job. Sources cite lack of congressional support and growing skepticism for success as factors for his departure. The White House has proposed providing an additional $1.6 billion to NASA in furtherance of the 2024 goal, but the administration has been met with much resistance on Capitol Hill. Should NASA not be able to get the additional money, Bridenstine says the timeline would probably move back to 2028. Anyhow, enough of the drama of politically driven space initiatives. This show is rich in science and discovery, and some great new music to boot. Stick around, and thanks for listening. That's a track entitled The Main Descent off the new soundtrack by Daniel Davies for the Belgian documentary Sours Glise out on Burning Witches Records. The movie is about two sisters getting ready for the Winter Paralympic Games in South Korea. The younger sister is visually impaired and only has the voice of her older sister to guide her down the slopes. The album is an amazing compliment for this inspiring story of triumph. Get it now over at burningwitchesrecords.bandcamp.com Welcome to Launch Report. This month, we'll check in on recent space and aerospace-related news, as well as review the recent and upcoming rocket launch schedules. Back on April 30th, NASA released the findings of its investigation uncovering the cause of two science mission launch failures. NASA Launch Services Program investigators determined the technical route for the cause of the Taurus XL launch failures of NASA's Orbiting Carbon Observatory and its GLORY missions in 2009 and 2011, respectively. Faulty materials provided by aluminum manufacturer SEPA Profiles Incorporated, or SPI. The Launch Services Program investigation led to the involvement of NASA's Office of the Inspector General and the U.S. Department of Justice. The DOJ's efforts, recently made public, resulted in the resolution of criminal charges and alleged civil claims against SPI, and its agreement to pay $46 million to the U.S. government and other commercial customers. This relates to a 19-year scheme that included falsifying thousands of certifications for aluminum extrusions to hundreds of customers. NASA's updated public summary of the launch failures comes after a multi-year technical investigation by the LSP and updates the previous public summaries on the Taurus XL launch failures. Those public summaries concluded that the launch vehicle fairing, a clamshell structure that encapsulates the satellite as it travels through the atmosphere, failed to separate on command but no technical root cause had been identified. From NASA's investigation, it is now known that SPI altered test results and provided false certifications to Orbital Sciences Corporation, the manufacturer of the Taurus XL, regarding the aluminum extrusions used in the payload fairing rail frangible joint. A frangible joint is a structural separation system that is initiated using ordnance. NASA relies on the integrity of its industry throughout the supply chain. According to a press release released by the Department of Justice, SPI disputes NASA's position, and except for those facts admitted in the DPA, which is a deferred prosecution agreement, and a plea agreement, the claims resolved by a civil settlement are allegations only. There has been no determination of liability. Moving on. On May 23rd, the European Space Agency announced a robust test including clocks, gravity, and the limits of relativity in celebration of the 100th anniversary of Einstein's milestone theory. The International Space Station will host the most precise clocks ever to leave the Earth. Accurate to a second in 300 million years, the clocks will push the measurement of time to test the limits of the theory of relativity and our understanding of gravity. Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity predicted that the gravity and speed influences time. The faster you travel, the more time slows down. But also, more gravity pulling on you, the more time slows down. On May 29th, 1919, Einstein's theory was first put to the test when Arthur Eddington observed light bending around the sun during a solar eclipse. Forty years later, the Pound-Rebka experiment first measured the redshift effect induced by gravity in a laboratory. But a century later, scientists are still searching for the limits of this theory. The theory of relativity describes our universe on a large scale, but on the border, with an infinitesimally small scale, the theory does not jive, and remains inconsistent with quantum mechanics explains Luigi Caciaputi, ESA's Atomic Clock Ensemble in Space, or ACE's Project scientists. Today attempts at unifying general relativity and quantum mechanics predict violations of Einstein's equivalence principle. Einstein's principle details how gravity interferes with time and space. One of its most interesting manifestations is time dilation due to gravity. This effect has been proven by comparing clocks at different altitudes, such as on mountains, in valleys, and in space. Clocks at higher altitudes show time passes faster with respect to a clock on Earth's surface, as there is less gravity from Earth the farther you are from the planet. Flying at 400 kilometers altitude at the space station, the atomic clock ensemble in space will make more precise measurements than ever before. ACES will create an internet of clocks, connecting the most accurate timepieces around the world and compare their timekeeping with the ones on humankind's weightless laboratory as it flies overhead. The clocks have been tested and integrated on the ACES payload, and the microwave link for ACES is undergoing tests before final integration with the full experiment. ACES will be ready to launch in the space station by 2020. And finally, the Planetary Society's LightSail 2 spacecraft is ready to embark on a challenging mission to demonstrate the power of sunlight for propulsion. Weighing just 5 kilograms, the Loaf of Bread-sized spacecraft, known as a CubeSat, is scheduled to lift off on 22nd of June, 2019, aboard a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket from the Kennedy Space Center. Once in space, LightSail 2 will deploy a boxing ring-sized solar sail and attempt to raise its orbit using the gentle push from solar photons. It's the culmination of a 10-year project with an origin story linked back to the three scientists-engineers who founded the Planetary Society in 1980. Forty years ago, my professor Carl Sagan shared his dream of using the solar sail spacecraft to explore the cosmos. The Planetary Society is realizing his dream, says Planetary Society CEO. Bill Nye. Thousands of people from all over the world came together and supported this mission. We couldn't have done it without them. Carl Sagan and his colleagues, Bruce Murray and Louis Friedman, created the organization to empower people everywhere to advance space science and exploration. If successful, LightSail 2 will become the first spacecraft to raise its orbit around the Earth using sunlight. While light has no mass, it has momentum that can be transferred to other objects. A solar sail harnesses this momentum for propulsion LightSail 2 will demonstrate the application of solar sailing for CubeSats, small, standardized spacecraft that have made spaceflight more affordable for academics, government organizations, and private institutions. LightSail 2 will ride the space aboard the Department of Defense's STP-2 mission, scheduled for launch on June 22nd. It'll also send 24 spacecraft into three different orbits, LightSail 2 itself will be enclosed within Prox-1, a Georgia Tech-designed spacecraft originally built to demonstrate the close-encounter operations with other spacecraft. Prox-1 will deploy LightSail 2 seven days after launch. A few days after health and status checks, LightSail 2's four-sided solar panels will swing open. Roughly a day later, four metallic booms will unfurl four triangular mylar sails from storage. The sails, which have a combined area of 32 square meters, will turn towards the sun for half of each orbit, giving the spacecraft a tiny push, no stronger than the weight of a paperclip. This continual thrust should raise Lightsail 2's orbit by a measurable amount. Lightsail 2 will fly to orbit 720 kilometers high, where the acceleration from sunlight overcomes atmospheric drag. The spacecraft may be visible in the night sky for a year to observers within 42 degrees of the equator. This includes the U.S. as far north as Chicago and New York. Back on May 4th, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched the 19th Dragon spacecraft mission on its 17th operational cargo delivery to the International Space Station. Then on the 5th, a Rocket Lab Electron rocket launched on its 6th flight from a facility on the Mahi Peninsula on New Zealand's North Island. On May 17th, a Chinese Long March 3C rocket launched a satellite for the country's Beidou Navigation Network. India's Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle, or PSLV, launched on the 21st, The PSLV C-46 launched the RISAT-2B Radar Earth Satellite for the Indian Space Research Organization. On the 22nd, a Chinese Long March 4C rocket failed during launch of the Yaogun 33 Military Reconnaissance Satellite. Then on the 23rd, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket launched 60 satellites for SpaceX Starlink Broadband Network. These are the first of 12,000 the company plans to launch over the next decade. On May 27th, the Russian government Soyuz rocket launched a Glasnost-M navigation satellite. In a dramatic video of the launch, you could see the rocket be struck by a massive bolt of lightning, which did not harm the rocket or payload at all. And on the 30th, a Russian government Proton rocket and Breeze-M upper stage launched the YAML-601 communications satellite for the Gazprom space systems. On June 5th, the Chinese Long March 11 rocket launched two JIN-1 Earth Imaging Satellites for the Changguang Satellite Technology Company. On June 11th, a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket will launch the Radarsat Constellation mission for the Canadian Space Agency. The 20th, Arianespace will use an ariane 5 ECA rocket designated VA-248 to launch the DirecTV-16 and UTLSAT 7C communication satellites. On June 21st, a Russian government proton rocket and a Block DM upper stage will launch the Spectra Spectr-RG X-ray Observatory. The mission will conduct an all-sky X-ray survey, observing galaxies and large-scale galactic clusters to help astronomers examine the role of dark energy and dark matter in the evolution of the universe. And as mentioned before, on June 22nd, the SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket will launch the U.S. Air Force's Space Test Program 2 mission with a cluster of military and scientific research satellites, including the LightSail 2, On the 27th, a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket will launch the 5th Advanced Extremely High Frequency, or A E H F, satellite from Cape Canaveral. The track Can't off a brand new EP from the band Fion. Off the label Soundtracking the Void, the album is called Momentum. The four song EP is rich with atmospheric analog textures and rhythms and is an all-around excellent release. You can buy this and all their other releases over at soundtrackingthevoid.bandcamp.com. This month on the Hubble Moment, we're going back to 1993 on the eve of the launch of the Space Shuttle Endeavour on the STS-61, the first, ever Hub- the first ever, the first Hubble repair mission. STS-61 crew included Commander Richard Covey, Pilot Kenneth Bowersox, Payload Commander Story Musgrave, and Mission Specialists Catherine Thornton, Claude Nicollier, Jeffrey Hoffman, and Tom Akers. The final shuttle flight of 1993 was one of the most challenging and complex crewed missions ever attempted. During a record five back-to-back spacewalks totaling 35 hours and 28 minutes, two teams of astronauts completed the first servicing of the Hubble Space Telescope. In many instances, tasks were completed sooner than expected, and a few contingencies that did arise were handled smoothly. Here's a bit from the astronauts themselves, describing the details and their thoughts of the repair mission.
1: Well, the rendezvous with the telescope actually starts right at liftoff. The orbiter's computers will be using the main engines to guide us into a precise orbit so that two days later we'll be able to catch up with the telescope. We have a large series of burns, ohms, and RCS burns that we'll be doing so that our orbits match up precisely. Um, as the rendezvous goes on, those burns get closer and closer together. Um, during the burns, Covey will be uh, monitoring the orbiter systems along with Claude and I Um, We'll be working with the ground to make sure the orbiter is going just to the right place in the sky. Um, As the pace of those burns increase, I think our excitement level is going to be increasing too. Um, The closer we get to the telescope, it's going to be getting bigger and bigger out the window. Um, About 30 minutes prior to rendezvous, uh, Covey will move to the aft station uh, where he'll take over manually firing the orbiter's RCS jets with what we call the THC, the Translational Hand Controller. Uh, The primary uh, information he'll be using for that is uh, radar information, which gives us uh, closing rate and position. And he'll also be using his eyeballs, uh, basic piloting skills, to to move us in slowly and gently to the telescope. Claude will be in the back also operating cameras, giving extra information, getting the arm ready for the grapple. I'll be up in front. Watching the systems, making sure the orbiter's working like a clock. Uh, We expect it will do that. Um, And there uh, will also be some other excitement uh, up on the flight deck. Uh, Story, Jeff, and Tom will all have cameras trying to document, kind of like what's going on in this room right now. imagine we'll have flashes going off everywhere and a lot of cameras in the windows. Uh, KT will be uh, using the laser, pointing it at the target, uh, trying to get one extra source of range and range rate marks. With all that going on, I hope I'll get a chance to move back and push people away for a few seconds and take a look at the telescope as we're getting in close. Uh, of course the rendezvous will culminate with Claude taking over with the arm, reaching out and grabbing the telescope. I'll let him tell you a little bit about that now and the other RMS operations we have on the flight.
2: Uh, I must say in general that uh, this mission is a, is a dream mission for an RMS or Remote Manipulator System operator because they will be more RMS operation on this flight than there has ever been in any shuttle mission so far, uh, and also more than there will be in the near future, except maybe when we <coughs> assemble uh, the space station where there will be quite a lot of RMS operation also. Now the uh, remote manipulator system will not only be used to capture the telescope, to grapple it and uh, install it uh, in the back of the cargo bay on uh, the fri- flight support structure, and to release it on the ninth day of the mission, but also in support of all of the extravehicular activities. All the five EVAs that will be talked about a little later by the EVA crew members will be supported by the arm in that one of the two EVA crew members will be free-floating, and the other one will be on a manipulative foot restraint at the tip of the arm and uh, uh, the RMS operator, Sox or myself, will have to maneuver this crew member from one place to the other in the cargo bay or toward the telescope in order to do the, the maintenance job. Now there is a, there's a big advantage in uh, using the arm in support of EVA operation. On one hand, the distances are relatively large between some location the cargo bay from the protective enclosures where the instruments that have to be replaced are located uh, and the telescope itself. On the other hand, It facilitates also the handling of large masses and especially the extraction and insertion of large masses and bulky masses like the uh, high-speed photometer or the corrective optics uh, space telescope axle replacement, uh, the corrective uh, optics element that uh, will take the place of the high-speed photometer. So the the arm uh, will be used uh, (coughs) extensively in order to facilitate this operation. If we have any failure with the arm. Uh, It is anticipated that although we will try to do all this operation, it will take quite a bit more time. Now, uh, as I said, on the ninth day of the mission, uh, we will uh, do the release of the telescope, the telescope will be uh, grappled again uh, while it is in that uh, structure in the back of the cargo bay. Uh, The latches will be released. The telescope will be put in a position with respect to the orbiter, which is the same as the position it had when we grappled it uh, on day three of the mission, and the release uh, will be performed then. See okay. you
0: is the track Wraith" from the latest release from Everyday Dust and Meme, called Terra Ephemera. This Sparkwood Records release is an unexpected find, and I'm absolutely blown away by the quality of this album. I picked up the cassette and a digital download, and I urge you to as well. Visit sparkwoodrecords.bandcamp.com to get your copy. First up this month on Exclusively EXO's, scientists at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research, at the Georg August University in Göttingen and the Sonnenberg Observatory have discovered 18 Earth-sized planets beyond the solar system. The worlds are so small that previous surveys had overlooked them. One of them is almost the smallest known so far, another one could offer conditions friendly to life. The researchers reanalyzed a part of the data from NASA's Kepler Space Telescope with new and more sensitive methods that they've developed. The team estimates that their new method has the potential of finding more than 100 additional exoplanets in the Kepler system's entire dataset. The scientists described the results in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. Some of more than 4,000 planets orbiting stars outside the solar system are already known. Of these, about 96% are significantly larger than our Earth, Most of them are comparable with the dimensions of the gas giants Neptune or Jupiter. This percentage likely does not reflect the real conditions in space, however, since small planets are much harder to track down than big ones. Moreover, small worlds are fascinating targets in their search for Earth-like, potentially habitable planets outside the solar system. The 18 newly discovered worlds fall into this category of Earth-sized planets. The smallest of them is only 69% the size of Earth. The largest is barely more than twice the Earth's radius. And they have another thing in common. All 18 planets could not be detected in the data from the Kepler Space Telescope so far. Common search algorithms were not sensitive enough. In the search for distant worlds, scientists often use the so-called transit method to look for stars with periodically recurring drops in brightness. If a star happens to have a planet whose orbital plane is aligned with the line of sight of Earth, the planet occults a small fraction of the stellar light as it passes in front of the star once per orbit. Standard research algorithms attempt to identify sudden drops in brightness. Large planets tend to produce deep and clear brightness variations of their host stars so that the subtle center-to-limb brightness variation of the star hardly plays a role in their discovery. Small planets, however, present scientists with immense challenges. Their effect on stellar brightness is so small, that it's extremely hard to distinguish from the natural brightness fluctuations of the star and from all the noise that necessarily comes with any kind of observation. The new algorithm from researchers does not search for abrupt drops in brightness like previously standard algorithms, but for a characteristic gradual dimming and recovery. This makes the new transit search algorithm much more sensitive to small planets the size of Earth. Our new algorithm helps draw a more realistic picture of the exoplanet population in space, summarizes Michael Hipke of the Sonneberg Observatory. This method constitutes a significant step forward, especially in the search for Earth-like planets. The researchers used NASA's Kepler Space Telescope as a testbed for the new algorithm. In the first mission phase from 2009 to 2013, Kepler recorded the light curves of more than 100,000 stars, resulting in the discovery of over 2,300 planets. After a technical defect, the telescope had to use an alternate method observing called the K2 mission, but it nevertheless monitored more than another 100,000 stars by the end of its mission in 2018. As a first test sample for their algorithm, the researchers decided to reanalyze 517 stars from K2 that were already known to host at least one transiting planet. In addition to the previously known planets, the researchers discovered 18 new objects that had previously been overlooked. In most of the planetary systems that we studied, the new planets were the smallest," co-author Kai Rodenbeck of the University of Göttingen and MPS described. What is more, most of the new planets orbit their star closer than the previously known planetary companions. The surfaces of these new planets, therefore, likely have temperatures well in excess of 100 degrees Celsius. Some even have temperatures up to 1000 degrees Celsius. The researchers assume that their method will enable them to find 100 more Earth-sized worlds in the data of the Kepler primary mission. This new method is also particularly useful to prepare for the upcoming PLATO mission to be launched in 2026 by the European Space Agency. PLATO will discover and characterize many more multi-planet systems around the Sun-like stars, some of which will be capable of harboring life. the song Schrodinger's Cat from the soundtrack of the film Out of Blue from musician Clint Mansell. Clint is known for his work in film as well as television and shows such as The Black Mirror. He's also the frontman for the pioneering British band Popolite Itself. Out on Lakeshore Records with a vinyl release on Invader Records, you can get this on all major streaming platforms or get the physical release and digital download over at www.invada.co.uk and click on the shop link in the main menu. Welcome to Mission Control. This month it's all about orbiting space observatories. First off, an article by Stephen Clark on Spaceflight Now details the unfortunate forced retirement of the Spitzer Space Telescope. NASA plans to end observations with the Spitzer Space Telescope in January 2020, concluding a 16-year mission that discovered exoplanets, studied galaxies in the ancient universe, and peered at planets and asteroids in our own solar system. NASA quietly announced a plan to end Spitzer's observations in a blog post earlier this month. Astronomers hope to keep Spitzer going until after the launch of the long-delayed James Webb Space Telescope, but the new observatory is now scheduled for launch in early 2021 and continues to dominate the budget for NASA's astrophysics division. On January 30, 2020, NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope will transmit the final science and engineering data to mission control and then be commanded off, ending its amazing and surprising mission," wrote Lisa Story Lombardi, Spitzer's project manager at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Scientists will archive the final data from Spitzer for use by future scientists. But even after Spitzer ceases transmissions, scientists will continue making discoveries from its 16 years of data for decades to come. Spitzer enables groundbreaking advances in our understanding of planetary systems around other stars, the evolution of galaxies in nearby and distant universe, the structure of the Milky Way galaxy, the infinite variety of lives of stars, and the constituents of our solar system. A review of NASA's operating astrophysics missions by an independent panel of scientists in 2016 ranked Spitzer at the bottom of a list of six projects examined by the board. Thomas Zurbuchen, head of NASA's science division, said May 21st that the agency followed guidance from senior review in deciding when to shut down Spitzer. Every once in a while, that means you turn off a mission because the science return is no longer warranting keeping it going in the context of other missions. Zurbuchen said during a meeting of the NASA Advisory Council Science Committee, It's not that there's no science to return, but there's less. Built by Lockheed Martin, Spitzer was the last of NASA's four original Great Observatories to launch, joining Hubble, the Compton Gamma Ray Observatory, and the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Designed for a five-year mission, Spitzer launched on August 25, 2003, aboard a Delta II rocket from Cape Canaveral. Scientists have recently found evidence that pairs of stars have been kicked out of their host galaxies. This discovery, made using NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, is one of the clearest examples of stellar pairs being expelled from their galactic base. Astronomers use the term binary system to refer to pairs of stars orbiting around each other. These stellar pairs can consist of combinations of stars, like our Sun, or more exotic and denser varieties such as neutron stars or even black holes. X-rays are produced when the cosmos X-rays are produced in the cosmos when matter is heated to millions of degrees. Such temperatures occur where high magnetic fields or extreme gravity or explosive forces hold sway. Neutron stars form when a massive star explodes as a supernova and the core of the star collapses into itself. Under certain conditions, these gargantuan blasts that create the neutron star are not symmetric. The recoil effect can kick the star with such force that it's expelled from the galaxy where it resides. These new Chandra results show that sometimes a companion star is forced to exit the galaxy as well. It's like a guest that is asked to leave the party with a rowdy friend, says Zhengju Jin of McGill University in Montreal, Canada, who led the study. The companion star in this situation is dragged out of the galaxy simply because it's in orbit with the star that went supernova. How do astronomers look for these banished pairs? If the companion star is close enough, then matter from it will swirl toward the denser neutron star and form a disk around the neutron star. The strong gravitational forces cause the material in this disk to move more rapidly as it approaches the neutron star, and frictional forces in the disk will heat the gaseous disk to tens of millions of degrees. At these temperatures, the disk glows in the X-ray light. Jin and her collaborators found signatures of the so-called X-ray binaries outside of the galaxies in a comprehensive study of the Fornax galaxy cluster made with Chandra data taken between 1999 and 2015. This cluster is relatively nearby at a distance of some 60 million light-years from Earth in a constellation sharing its name. By combining the Chandra dataset with optical observations, researchers made a census of X-ray sources within about 600,000 light-years of the central galaxy. Astronomers concluded that about 30 sources in the Fornax cluster were likely to be pairs of stars which had been kicked out of the center of their host galaxies. Rather than being tethered to a particular galaxy, these pairs of stars now exist in the space between galaxies, or are on their way out of their home galaxy," says co-author Mi Hu from the Nanjing University in China. The team also found about 150 sources that appear to be outside the stellar boundaries of the galaxy, within the cluster. These were determined, however, to have origins other than expulsion. It's like the end of a party, where people attending head off in different directions, and only the hosts are left behind. As co-authors author Jing Zhu. One possibility is that they reside in the halos, or the far outer reaches, of the Fornax Cluster's central galaxy, where they were formed. A second possibility is that they are X-ray binaries that were pulled away from a galaxy by the gravitational force of nearby galaxy during a flyby, or X-ray binaries left behind as parts of remnants of a galaxy stripped of most of its stars by a galactic collision. Such interactions are expected to be relatively common in the crowded region, like the one in the Fornax Cluster. The Chandra observations involved a total exposure time of 15 days, enabling the team to discover 1,177 X-ray sources within their region, which covers 29 galaxies in the Fornax cluster. As mentioned before, Chandra X-ray Observatory is part of NASA's fleet of great observatories, along with the Spitzer, the Hubble Space Telescope, and the now deorbited Compton Gamma-ray Observatory. The Chandra X-ray Observatory, which launched in the space shuttle in 1999, is managed by the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Mass. a new release off giallo disco records from the artist bront industries capital that's the first track where's the line from the album of the same name you can buy this and all the other fantastic releases from the label over at giallo This month on Unlikely Encounters, we're going to talk about the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, which celebrates its 50th year in operation. MUFON is a US-based nonprofit organization composed of civilian volunteers who study alleged UFO sightings. It is one of the oldest and largest organizations of its kind, claiming more than 4,000 members worldwide with chapters and representatives in more than 43 countries and all 50 states. In 2015, MUFON founded the Mutual UFO Network University, an unaccredited online institution which seeks to train members to investigate UFO sightings. The organization has been criticized for its focus on pseudoscience, and critics say its investigators fail to use the scientific method. MUFON was originally established as the Midwest UFO Network on May 31, 1969, in Quincy, Illinois, Most of MUFON's early members were associated with the Skylook newsletter of Strover, Missouri, and the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, or APRO, formerly of Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin. MUFON was renamed Mutual UFO Network in 1973 because of its expansion to other states and internationally. MUFON is currently headquartered in Irvine, California, under the direction of Jan Harzen. It holds an annual international symposium and publishes the monthly MUFON UFO Journal. Their group now has more than 500 field investigators, as well as a specialized team to investigate possible physical evidence of extraterrestrial craft. The network trains volunteers to be investigators and teaches them how to interview witnesses, perform research, and how to draw conclusions from evidence. Although investigators are not paid, they must pass an exam based on the 265-page manual and a background check. MUFON features a case management system on its website and hosts a web-based newsroom. According to science writer Sharon Hill, MUFON's focus is decidedly unscientific, with talks on alien abduction, conspiracy theories, human ET hybrids, hypnotic regression, and repressed memories, and reflects a wide range of pseudoscience. MUFON has been the subject of criticism for drifting away from their original nuts and bolts of investigation into bizarre conspiracy and exopolitics talk. The organization receives large numbers of UFO reports every year. The qualifications of the amateur volunteers examining the reports, however, have been questioned. From Hill's own blog post in August 2011, she reports the following. The Los Angeles Times reported on an annual MUFON conference with the headline, Convention Emphasizes Scientific Methods. The reporter then skewers his ideas by showing at least how some of the attendees have thoroughly embraced the idea of alien visitation and human-alien hybridization. The reporter doesn't have to go to the fringe to point out the sham of science here. It's more basic than that, rooted in popular misunderstanding about what science is and what scientists do. UFO researchers, including MUFON, were included in my study of ARIGs, Amateur Research and Investigation Groups. I looked at how they use the concept of science and being scientific in their activities. In this article, we see some common devices come up. They emphasize the precision of a scientist and the use of devices. All that is fine, but certain critical components of being scientific are missing. First, scientific training is absent. Almost no ARIG participants have academic training as scientists. Among many science concepts they are not familiar with, they have not been schooled in how personal bias scuttles the reliability of scientific results. Scientific procedure is about careful collection of data, but also strongly emphasizes the elimination of bias. The majority of UFO investigators, along with ghost and cryptid researchers, are pro-paranormal. They readily embrace a paranormal explanation, often as a default. I can't explain this, ergo, it must be paranormal, be that alien technology, spirits, or something else that is not accepted by science. This is not logical, and it's wrong. It's unscientific. Your average working scientist is not allowed to go this route. Thus, we can see why a path to scientific acceptance is blocked at the very first gate. The UFO researchers are upset that the scientific community does not accept their evidence as compelling. Their standards for evidence are very different than mine. Paranormal research is sustained by subjective experiences and reported stories. If you, Mr. Researcher, are going to ask me to accept that eyewitnesses a story defies currently accepted science, concluding that aliens are buzzing the earth, you are going to have to have way better evidence than subjective, non-verified stories. You need to give me corroborating lines of evidence that can be checked and tested need to give me an explanation that fits with the physics and the science knowledge we already confirmed. It has to make sense. UFO researchers fail to do this. Instead, they propose speculative theories supported by weak anecdotal evidence. Scientists who examined the evidence for UFO sightings decades ago determined that this subject and its evidence was about as strong as wet paper they left, leaving the field to the few deviant scientists and devoted amateurs. But I do not mean to say that it isn't a field worthy of research. People have experiences that they can't explain. Currently, some genuine research is going on regarding our perceptions, our faulty memories, and our need to interpret things in certain ways. That's extremely valuable study. Yet, that is not what UFO researchers are doing. Frankly, the scientists don't pay attention anymore for reasons stated above, but the public thinks they should. Something unexplainable in the sky is an interesting mystery. So why shouldn't a scientist be interested? ARIGs undertake the role science abandoned long ago in this area. In addition, ARIGs have co-opted the trappings of science to go with it. It's a good thing that Buffon trains their investigators in a standard way. A community standard of evidence collection is important. However, it's not enough to count as scientific. Another crucial component is missing. There is no peer review, publication, or skeptical critique. These communities are closed to outsiders who take a different view, such as scientific skeptics. We are not wanted. Thus, The amateur researchers into UFOs, ghosts, or cryptids never gets better. It gets more superficially sophisticated and scientifical, which does nothing to improve upon it except to add false credibility in the public's eyes. I worry about this. The public thinks what they do is science, and it falls far short of that. the artist phantoms versus fire that's the track my voice is in my sword from the brand new concept album called modern monsters this is an epically huge sounding album with orchestral overtones and lots of swelling tension self-released you can buy this and all of the artists excellent releases over at Phantoms Fire.bandcamp.com. Now wrapping up the show, we've got night vision. This past month, I got to spend some time at my daughter's fourth grade class filling out postcards to send to space, thanks to an offer from Blue Origin. On May 9th, Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos laid out the architecture for missions to the moon aimed at supporting NASA's goal of landing astronauts on the lunar surface by 2024. The game plan for Bezos's space venture, Blue Origin, calls for continuing work on the company's Blue Moon lunar lander and a new breed of hydrogen-fueled rocket engines known as the BE-7. The Blue Origin has been discussing the lander concept with NASA for years and proposes to build Blue Moon in response to a solicitation that NASA is due to issue this month. During the invitation-only event at the Washington Convention Center, Bezos said that sending humans to the moon by 2024 and establishing a permanent lunar settlement would be in sync with his own vision for humanity's future in space. I love this. It's the right thing to do, Bezos said. We can meet that timeline, but only because we started this three years ago. It's time to go back to the moon, and this time, to stay." The showstopper came when Bezos pulled the wraps off the full size mock-up of the Blue Moon lander. This is an incredible vehicle, and it's going to the moon, he says. The cargo version of the lander could deliver 3.6 metric tons of payload to the lunar surface, while a stretch tank version of the craft could put 6.5 metric tons on the moon. Bezos said that the stretch version could provide enough carrying capacity to accommodate astronauts. The stretch lander was shown with an ascent vehicle on top, while an illustration of the cargo lander had a set of four rovers sitting on top. Blue Moon would be equipped with a crane system to lower payloads from the lander's deck to the surface. Bezos shied away from referring to a specific mission. He said that Earth will always be the best planet for our species, but repeated his off-stated view that over the decades ahead, Increasing demand for energy and resources will require humanity's expansion out into the solar system. The good news is, is if we move out into the solar system, for all practical purposes, we have unlimited resources," he says. His long-range vision calls for establishing an outpost on the Moon and Mars, and city-sized spaceships that rotate to produce artificial gravity, such habitats known as O'Neill Cylinders, in honor of Princeton physicist and space settlement advocate Jerry O'Neill, one of Bezos' college mentors. Bezos has said that he's spending a billion dollars a year on Blue Origin, with most of that money going towards the New Glenn rocket project. All of this activity stems from Bezos' childhood dream of spaceflight, sparked 50 years ago when he watched the Apollo 11 moon landing at the age of five. Some of the friends from his youth have joked that the reason he created Amazon was to earn the money to fund his own space effort. And just as jokingly. Bezos has said he can neither confirm nor deny that claim. Bezos often said his dream is to have millions of people living and working in space, even though it may take centuries to get to that point. Who's going to do all this work? Not me. These kids are in the front row. You're going to do this, and your children are going to do this, Bezos said, referring to students in attendance from the DC International School and the Latin American Montessori Bilingual Public Charter School. To get the next generation started off on the right foot. Blue Origin is creating an educational group known as the Club for the Future. The group's first activity is Postcards for Space, which gives kids the opportunity to write down or draw their vision for having millions of people living and working in space on the back of a stamped, self-addressed postcard. The first 10,000 postcards received by Blue Origin's Kent Headquarters before July 20th, the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 landing, will be packed aboard a New Shepard spaceship for a suborbital flight to space and back. Then they'll be mailed back to the addressee. I can't wait to fly your postcards, Bezos told the kids. For more information on the Club for the Future and the postcards from Space Project, check out the club's website, clubforthefuture.org. Did you know that flashes of light have been seen randomly on the surface of the moon? With a new telescope, Professor Hakan K.L. of the University of Würzburg wants to get to the bottom of these phenomena. It happens several times a week sometimes it's only short flashes of light that appear on the surface of the moon. Other light phenomena can last longer, and sometimes there's also places that darken temporarily. Science doesn't know exactly how these phenomena occur on the moon, but it has attempts to explain them. The impact of a meteor, for example, could cause a brief glow. Such flashes could also occur when electrically charged particles of the solar wind react with the moon dust. Seismic activities were also observed on the moon. When the surface moves, Gases that reflect sunlight could escape from the interior of the moon. This would explain the luminous phenomenon, some of which last for hours, says KL. The so-called transient lunar phenomenon have been known since the 1950s, but they have not been sufficiently systematically and long-term observed. This is currently changing, and the professor wants to make his contribution. As a first step, KL's team built a lunar telescope and put it into operation in April 2019. It is located at a private observatory in Spain. The telescope is remote controlled for the university campus and consists of two cameras that keep an eye on the moon night after night. Only if both cameras register a luminous phenomenon at the same time, the telescope triggers further actions. It then stores the photos and video sequences of the event and sends emails to KL and his team. The system is not completely finished. The software, which automatically and reliably detects flashes and other light phenomenon, is still being further refined. Kale plans to use artificial intelligence methods, among other things, to ensure that the system gradually learns to distinguish moon flash from technical faults or from objects such as birds and airplanes passing in front of the camera. When the telescope has documented a luminous phenomenon, Kale's team will compare it with the results from the European Space Agency, which also observes the moon. If the same thing was seen there, the event could be considered confirmed. If necessary, further joint research could then be initiated. Interest in the lunar luminous phenomenon is currently very high, This is due to the new race to the moon that is underway. Anyone who wants to build a lunar base at some point must of course be familiar with the local conditions, says Professor Kale. It should be clear what the mysterious flashes and the luminous phenomenon are all about. Well, that concludes this month's episode of Galaxy Rise. Thank you for joining me. Thanks to all the musicians and labels and science communicators who've helped make this show what it is. Galaxy Rise is a production of Star Stuff Studios and is hosted by me, Dustin Ruoff. Let me know what you think by emailing hellogalaxyrise at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at rise underscore galaxy. Search Hello Galaxy Rise on Facebook, YouTube, or visit www.galaxyrise.com. Until next month, clear skies.